a brief new series on the Psalms, and the subtitle is Deliberately Crafted so that you understand the Psalms. They are the sung prayers of God's people. We apply them to ourselves individually, but they were corporately sung by Israel. And they're not just songs, they're sung prayers. So all those things uh, come together for us. And as we approach our first psalm in the series today, I want to talk to you for a few minutes about heart failure. Uh, Medically, heart failure is defined as the inability of the pumping capacity of your heart to meet your body's demands. And some of the symptoms and signs of that are shortness of breath, uh, swelling, uh, not being able to lie down flat. Uh, The common causes of heart failure in America are blockages in your coronary arteries leading to decreased blood supply or ischemia, heart attacks uh, in your heart, and uh, valvular abnormalities and poorly controlled hypertension. But I want to call your attention to the fact that about one in 10 cases of heart failure doesn't come from those common causes. It comes from things called restriction and constriction. And I'll just be brief with you on this. Your heart is a flexible pumping organ in your chest, and it's contained inside uh, a connective tissue sac. There's a sac around your heart, and it's called the pericardium. And there's a certain set of diseases that you can have, probably top on the list, it would be tuberculosis, maybe autoimmune diseases, that will take that sac and begin to stiffen and calcify that sac and thicken it so that the flexibility of your heart, its ability to fill, will be markedly diminished and then you will have heart failure, and that's called a pericardial constriction, okay? So I won't go any deeper into that, but it's a gradual process. You had tuberculosis, you were exposed, you have an autoimmune disease, and this thing thickens up over time, and then ultimately your heart won't pump properly, and it all happened apart from your awareness. Now, I tell you that, that's a physical analogy for heart failure, that Jesus says in the spiritual realm, uh, there's the same kind of thing. He tells his disciples before he goes to the cross, watch out, be careful that your heart isn't weighed down by the cares of this life. The scriptures say to us, watch out for this gradual, deadly prospect of a heart weighed down or a hardened heart. You see, uh, constrictive pericardial heart failure has the the name heart in a box. I think you can pull that right over to the spiritual realm and say, how might I be growing to have a heart that's not free, that's not at liberty before the Lord? How might I be growing a heart in a box? And you can just ask yourself today, what are you carrying in here? Because actually, our our spiritual cares of this life, we often carry in our chest, don't we? A sense of heaviness, a lack of expansiveness. When you're under a lot of stress, you don't breathe deeply. All those things are true. They're analogous both in the physical and the spiritual realm. 
And so the question before you and before me today is, how could Psalm 16 serve as a prophylaxis or a preventative for this kind of heart disease on a spiritual level? Now, you could adduce lots of texts. You could say the whole Bible is designed to do that. But we're starting in the Psalms, and we're starting with Psalm 16. And I want to commend it to you by way of application, the first six verses, as an habitual walkthrough so that you don't have a heart that's weighed down or constricted, that you have liberty and freedom of heart before the Lord. So if you have your worship guide, it's on page 13, and it'll be on the screen. Uh, This is an amalgam of various translations. Um, I didn't like particularly any particular one of them. Uh, Psalm 16, verses 1 through 6. Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. I will not pour out their libations of blood or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. Uh, This psalm is attributed to King David. And we want to look at it to say, how can we grow in liberty and freedom of heart? And the first thing that we'll say about this, both together and individually, is we we talk to our hearts. We have a little talk with our heart. And by the heart, I mean the seat of who you are as a whole person. Not going to get into those definitions, but your will, your emotions, your thinking, uh, everything about you. Heart of mind, enjoy good things in God's presence. Now, you might not hear this in a lot of places, and it's a characteristic fault of the evangelical church. God has made good things for us to enjoy. So heart of mind, in the presence of God, you rejoice in them and enjoy them. Look at what he says, verses 1 and 2. Keep me safe, O God. Now, what does he want to be safe from? Uh, Saul, uh, the king, was out to get him. Was it Saul? Is it the Philistines, their enemies across the border? I, I think there's something more to this than those visible enemies. He says, keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. We're going to find that this whole text is about idols. I'm not seeking safety in anyone else but you. Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. And he expands this safety a little bit by saying, I say to the Lord, and you see in the translation, this is all caps. This is the proper name for the triune God. And now they may not have articulated that at the time of David, but we, in light of the new covenant, can see this. The Lord, Yahweh, is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's saying to the Lord, you are my master. You're my master. I have a servant relationship with you. Trying God, I give myself to you as your servant. And apart from you, I have no good thing. And this is really the 
the clause or the statement that anchors what I'm saying. You could interpret this by saying, since you're my master, you provide everything for me. Everything good has to come from you. And that's true in a sense. But we want to assert the truth of the whole scripture. And I borrowed this from C.S. Lewis in part and other writers is that even the good things that God gives become corrupted to sinful people when they're not enjoyed in his presence and under his loving fatherly gaze for those who believe. So so the point here is for us, let's prevent our hardness of heart by enjoying and rejoicing in the good things that God gives to us, created things in his presence. And the key thing there is under his loving gaze in fellowship and in conversation with him. So I just want to take an example of this to talk about work And when I talk about work, I want to include everybody in that. I want to include children and young people in schoolwork. I want to include uh, stay-at-home moms who are working in household management. I want to include uh, everybody who's out in the workforce. I want to include retired people. You name it, you have something before you that you're supposed to do. And the Lord says, work is good. Fill the earth and subdue it. It's a good gift from the Lord. And I was reading uh, this week about a church that was having a workshop with 50 or so young adults to talk about jobs and vocation and to think through those issues in light of of Scripture. And one of the questions, you know, you kind of at these workshops, you have these questions and you move around in small groups and stuff. Uh, They were doing that kind of thing. And they said, I feel completely fulfilled in the job I have, completely fulfilled. And so on one side of the room, you would migrate to the, I'm 100% fulfilled in my work. And then on the other side of the room, you'd migrate like, you know, I'm not, I'm empty, empty, empty in the work that I have to do. And so you can imagine that people sort of scattered across that axis. A few people said, I'm completely fulfilled. Some people said, I'm empty and you scatter out. They had a few questions like that, but I think What they were really trying to get at is the question that sort of stumped everybody. Um, And that was they said, okay, we're going to line up on this statement. I am close to God in my job. My daily work is worship, which fulfills me spiritually. And a lot of the young people that were in that workshop felt sort of ambushed by that. Kind of like a trick question. Who Who would have ever thought that my work would be done as worship in the presence of God under his loving gaze as an offering of worship to him. And, and the way it scattered out is that there was nobody out of 50 on the side of the room that could honestly say, yes, my, my work is worship would be a way to say this. I have fellowship with God in my work. And so you see, when you turn this around and look at it from this point of view, work is a good thing, but unless it's done as worship, you're never going to be fulfilled. It's never going to be the perfect job. It's never going to be what you were looking for because you're looking for something created to satisfy what only a relationship with the living God through faith in Jesus Christ in the presence of the Holy Spirit can really give you. And so when you, when you look at this text, we're talking about enjoying good things in the presence of God. You can expand that now to everything that's created. Everything. So has God given you a spouse? 
and with all your marital troubles and struggles and everything, is that good? We see you're always going to have a problem unless you can say, God has given me this spouse and it's good. And I won't demand from my spouse in this relationship what only the Lord can give me. For me to function in this relationship properly, I have to be satisfied with the love of God in Christ and with fellowship with Him. Your schoolwork, your work, everything that God has given us, that's good. Uh, Sexuality within the bounds of a man and a woman married together. I have to have that in the presence of the Lord as a gift that's a good thing. Food. All these things that can be a snare to us, God created food to be enjoyed with thanksgiving in His presence. And it can become a corrupt binge. It, it can become something that's, that's not right. Or it can be good in His presence. And so we want to think of this. And as I pondered this text, uh, and again, you know, I don't want to put any... <laughs> extra authority on my own spiritual experience, but maybe it will, it will help you. Pounding in my head, and I actually had to get a concordance and look it up. Pounding in my head when I was thinking about these verses was a statement by the Apostle Paul, to the pure, all things are pure. To the pure, all things are pure. Now he wrote that to people who live on the island of Crete who he said were evil brutes and lazy gluttons. But he wasn't asking them to withdraw from life, to shun things that God had given to be good. He was saying in the purity that Christ gives, in the presence of the pure and holy one, you take those good gifts and live them out and interact with them with thanksgiving. And really, this, way, this is what it comes down to, that all of life is worship and thanksgiving. Now, if this cuts you, it cuts me a lot deeper. One of my friends, one of my elder friends who's an elder in this church said to me this week, uh, you know, I want to remind you that you're a glass half full kind of guy. And I took that and he's right. And unless all the things that we put our hands to are held in the loving presence of God. You know, Ligonier and others have made a big deal out of this. They use the Latin term quorum Deo. And as I've heard people talk about that, living before the face of God, living quorum Deo, what I hear is a slant on that, that that the Lord's the great policeman. And I think that's inconsistent with this text. As a father giving gifts to those who believe, hey, you enjoy this. This is a gift I give you. Life can be celebrated in my presence. So that's the first thing I think that will keep us from a joyless hardness of heart, from a kind of spiritual pericardial constriction, as it were, a heart in a box. The second thing that I want to point out to you is that David calls us together as a community to reject idolatry with one another. That we, as a community, as a believing community, would say, we're going to help one another reject serving idols. Look at verses 3 and 4. 
He says, and it seems like a jarring thing, but it, it actually fits. As for the saints, the holy ones who are in the land, and he's looking out over Israel and he's looking at people who are engaged in idolatry. They don't trust the Lord alone the way he's asserted prior, but they have mixed allegiances. I'll take a little bit of Yahweh and a little bit of Baal and a little bit of whoever else. He says, there are those who aren't doing that. As for those holy ones who are in the land, they're the glorious shining ones in whom is all my delight. I delight, Lord, in your people that are trusting in you. And then he says, Conversely, the sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. And I will not pour out their libations of blood, their blood drink offerings. And I think it's hard for us to appreciate this. If you've lived in a culture that still does animal sacrifices, you know that this is a big deal. People are slaughtering animals all the time and pouring out drink offerings to gods and spirits to get their way in the earth. And he says, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to trust the Lord. I'll not pour out their libations of blood, their offerings, or take up their names on, on my lips. I'm not going to pray to any of these other gods, no matter what my circumstances are. My allegiance is to the Lord alone. And you know that in our society, our secularized society, Maybe you have a statue on your mantle and you're an you're a idolater of a, a physical image, but most of us, that's not the case. We would consider that to be archaic. So how do we apply this idolatry? And we, we've talked about this a number of times, but we want to say an idol is anything that insidiously, and this word didn't come out in the first service, but I like it now, an idol is anything that's created that insidiously creeps in to be the first thing of satisfaction in your life. It can be a very good thing. It can be something that's unlawful, which you know in your conscience should not rule over you. But often, for many of us, it's good things that have taken an improper place. And what you're saying, and you would never say it outright, right? And this is the insidious nature of the thing. You'd never sit down and say, you know what? I want the approval of those people in my small group or in my employment practice more than anything else. What's most important to me is to be approved. Or I want more than anything else. I'm rejecting the Lord to fill up my retirement account. And we could go on and on listing some of those things. So what does it look like for that to happen uh, insidiously in a person's life? Well, I want to tell you a story that I got from Larry Crabb. Uh, he's, a, he's passed away now. He's a Christian counselor and a prolific author. And he, in one of his books, was telling the story of a man named Tim Burke. And Tim Burke was a major league pitcher. He was a relief pitcher who was uh, very skilled. He pitched for the Expos and the Mets and then finally ended up with the Yankees at the peak of his career. He was making tons of money. Tim Burke was a follower of Christ and so was his wife. And they decided that they were going to glorify God and love people by doing international adoptions. And so with his money and their resources, they adopted five sort of needy children from the international sphere. 
And this was celebrated, uh, Focus on the Family, ended up publishing a book about this, that he decided to retire from baseball. So the way the storyline went is I'm giving up fame and fortune to devote myself to my wife and my adopted children. It's a good story, right? It's a story of following Christ. It's absolutely a good thing. They They were attempting something noble. Well, as is the case for a lot of our group or tribe here, uh, that went off and was a sensation for a little while and then left. Larry Crabb came into the story some years later, and he ended up having coffee with Tim Burke and meeting with him at a coffee shop over two years. Why would Larry Crabb be involved in this? Well, what happened was, out of the five adopted children, four of those children had something called reactive attachment disorder, And this is a a thing that happens uh, sometimes with adopted children uh, where uh, they're not going to fit into a family system and the whole family can become unsafe through their behavior. They had to be institutionalized. They lost four of those five children to be institutionalized. And you might say to yourself, oh, I would never do that. Well, uh, the Bible really might compel that if it means saving lives and things like that. So... Let's, let's be careful in our evaluation of that. And then uh, the fifth child uh, had uh, birth defects and was undergoing surgery and had an intraoperative uh, anoxia or hypoxia, low oxygen, that resulted in brain damage. So this is what they're left with. So when Larry Crabb began to talk with him, he was also separated from his wife, had gotten publicly a, a DWI, uh, and was despairing of life every morning, wishing every morning that he didn't live. So very gently, and and when we talk about this as a community, we have to be very, very careful, right? We want to be asking one another, what's going on in your life? Has a second thing, has a created thing become a first thing? But we do that with patience, with gentleness and slowly. And so over these two years, what Larry Crabb tried to help Tim Burke to do is to see this noble, good thing that he had in mind actually had a picture of it at the end where he and his wife were servants of Christ. All their adopted kids were doing well and functioning well, and they were sitting around the Christmas tree having joy at Christmas time. Now, God's not the author of evil, but he rules over evil. And so there was all kinds of problems with this that we're not going to assign to him. But what he did was he used this in Tim Burke's life that he could not be confirmed as a religious person who says, if I do it right, God will bless me. I want to do it right. I want to love the Lord. But I keep in mind that the only thing that counts, no matter what the outcome, is his presence with me. He's my greatest good. And if you, you can, he can say with Job, you want to be able to say with Job, though you slay me, yet will I praise you. Thank you, Lord, for stripping away idols that I didn't know I had. Now, there's an appropriate grief about everything that happened to that man, and we would not want to 
We would not want to rob him of appropriate grief. But where does that spill over to the despair that reveals that this was actually an idolatry? There's actually another God that you were serving, a God really of your own making on outcomes. And this is very searching and very piercing to me. I can, I can look back. This sermon and today's worship has called me to, caused me to look back over years and say, wow, um, I've been, my heart has been running insidiously in some wrong directions that need to be corrected, that need to be brought to Christ. So what do you do then? You know, do you have to have some catastrophe, some terrible jolt like this? Well, no. The Lord's more interested in freeing us of our heart idols and keeping us from having uh, spiritual pericardial constriction than we are ourselves. You can go to the Lord, the risen Christ, who loves you, and say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Show me if there's any offensive way in me. And there's some questions that, that you could be asking yourself that this has been popular, this subject has been popular now for a decade or more. Um, you can be asking yourself what about my emotions? We really don't reflect well on our, on our emotions. To just stop and say, if I wake up and I'm completely in despair, everything seems gray and dark, why is that? What did I want that I'm not getting? What, what is happening now will give, will give rise to some organic problems like William Cooper had and everything. But that's not the case for most of us. Don't get the exceptions to, to get rid of the whole thing, right? Let it search you. What about the people in your life? Whose opinion do I most crave? Who am I imagining how I will justify myself to that person? What group of people do I need to be seen uh, as okay with? And in my work, will I live without this promotion or this track or this affirmation? What if, that's, what if that's pulled out from under me? You can simply search yourself. And one of the problems is we refuse to be quiet, right? What happens if you have some downtime? You pull out your phone and you start scrolling. Who's texted me recently? Who do I need to be texting back? What emails did I get? what's happened on the news feed in the last few minutes. So if we're just quiet, if you, if you actually would stop and be quiet, where does your mind go? What do you dream about? What do you long for? What would give you the most pleasure? And you see, if any, of the, if any created things go into that, then you're asking for sorrows. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. And so if you say, I have to have work, work out this way, it has to be this way, then you're going to be riddled with anxiety, you're going to be a people pleaser, you're going to be, you're going to be inclined to lie and cheat to keep that place. And if you decide my spouse has to speak to me or relate to me in a certain way for me to be able to live, otherwise I'm going to cut her off, I'm going to cut him off, I'm going to get out of this mess, what you're saying is, I'm going to be riddled, I'm going to be controlled by this other person all the time. And I'm going to be filled with sorrows. And so the only freedom and liberty that we have as people is saying to the Lord, you are my Lord, and apart from you, I have no good thing. And so how would this, how would this happen? You simply sit down and pray and ask the Lord to examine you if you're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you come to him and say, Lord, I want to have this freedom of heart. I entrust myself to you, risen Christ. You died for sinners, you rose again. 
Now, Holy Spirit, search me, set me free. And you make a list of those things. And most of these things are not things that you can cut off. Nobody's saying go out and quit your job. So here's the struggle is that you have to be able to do your job without letting it be an idol. You have to be able to live with your spouse without being enslaved to your expectations. Who's equal to that task? Only Jesus. And only Christ in a sinner, the hope of glory. And there's joy on the other side of that. There is joy on the other side of that. And when you walk in it for a few hours, you begin, a few hours, a few days, you begin to get a taste of that kind of joy. So that's the second thing that we want to say. As a congregation, as a community of God's people, we want to be rejecting idolatry. We want to be searching ourselves. We want to be encouraging one another. Has a second place thing become a first place thing in your life? The, the place is only reserved for the Lord. And then finally, I want to say, uh, the last thing is, we want to say to our hearts, be satisfied. So again, your brief outline, so you can hang on to this, is enjoy reject, and now be satisfied. Be satisfied with the Lord alone. He says, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. This, this language, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. This is the portion that you get at the king's table. This is the place of a leader or a superior or a rich person giving to somebody who's an inferior. This is what Joseph did when his brothers came to Egypt. He gave his biological brother a greater portion, greater portion of clothes, greater portion of food, all those things. And he says, Lord, you alone are my sustenance for life. And then flowing out of that, flowing out of this, this heart posture that Christ gives to his 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 people, we see that the circumstances of my life belong to you. He said, you have made my lot secure. And this is probably in, in an Israeli mind or a, a person's mind referring back to the distribution of the land under Joshua. Some tribes got their allotted portion first, and then there were seven that they cast lots for. They, they put a survey out over the whole land, and then they came back and cast lots for the different tribes to occupy them. He's saying that the lot that I got by chance under the Lord's sovereignty is a lot that I'm delighted with. And the boundary lines of that portion have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. And I just want you to very quickly think about David. Here's David. I don't know, did he really write this psalm? That, that's not actually part of the inspired text, but it's attributed to him. We're going to give it to David. I don't know when in his life he wrote it, but it's an affirmation of what he believed. And if you look at his life, what you find is he goes out uh, to help his brothers to visit the front lines and his brothers start to mock him. You little shrimp, why are you out here? You know, go back to those few sheep of yours. Uh, then after that, he comes into Saul's service and his boss tries to kill him a number of times and he has to flee and run away. He's in exile. He's living in an alien land and there his life is threatened. He's gonna die and he has to pretend that he's insane in order to stay alive. He comes back, he wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence into Jerusalem, he wants to have a big worship service. A really good thing, right? Let's, let's have the Lord's uh, presence in Jerusalem. And one of his worship team members gets killed on the way. 
is struck down by the Lord. I would say that's a bad day at church. You know, that's not what you were looking for. And we could just go, we could go on about how David had suffering in his life. And yet he says, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. And so just to think about this and to say, ultimately, the delightful inheritance that you have if you're in Christ is on the other side. It's in a new creation. We can say under God's providence, Lord, this inheritance you've given me is difficult. I thank you for it. But I will affirm that the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. And then there's an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you who are in Christ, that doesn't have any suffering, any tears, any problems. So ultimately, the anchor for this, like it was for William Cooper, the ultimate healing comes at the return of Christ. And so what do we do then in the meantime? Well, I just want to uh, assure you, uh, I had a patient with pericardial constriction, and he had a lot of other problems. And we messed around and looked around and studied and did everything. And a lot of consultants, a lot of stuff. Actually, we were in a little bit of a hurry because of the nature of medicine. You don't have a lot of time to stop and think. And it was only when this fellow was really at the point of death that, that somebody figured out, hey, what's really going on here is a pericardial constriction and he needs a treatment for that. And I just want to say, you don't have to be that patient. <laughs> Jesus is a better diagnostician than any of us that were on that case. He's good. He's never lost a case. He's the right one to have. So you simply go to him and say, Lord, I want to be satisfied with you alone. I want you to be my all. I want to enjoy the good things that you've given me and reject everything that wants to take insidiously first place in my life. And I will walk in this. You show me. And then what you do is you simply confess on a, on a persistent basis, Lord, this is my idol. You know, people have recurrent idols. Okay, I won't go on in that, but you know, um, some people have the recurrent idol of control and they just keep circling back to it. Some people have the rec concurrent, recurrent idol of ease. I don't want to be bothered. They circle back to it. And so the way you weaken and kill that idol is by persistent confession and bringing it to the cross of Christ and saying, Lord, this heart sin of mine was crucified with you. Live in me. I turn away from it. Remind me today when I'm walking back in it. And he will delight in that. And he delights in you. And you can enjoy him forever. Let's pray together. Father, uh, we come to you now. And we pray that you would work these things in us. Lord, uh, this can seem overwhelming. It's a little overwhelming to me as I see all the different ways that my heart uh, would insidiously go astray. Will you help us? Will you enable us to lay hold of a few of these strands and bring them to you? And would you bring us, your people, into the liberty and freedom of heart that you desire for us? We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.